Bent Kenobi. Why do you disturb our meditation, my child? I'm Lucas Skytalker, and I've come so that you might show me the path of enlightened spirituality. Have you tried a self-help book? Idiot's Guide to? Perhaps trade in your church, do yoga, or even a new religion? I'm confused. What perplexes you, my child? Well, I've learnt many things, like how to pray and say om. I've learnt to catch a fly with two chopsticks and how to carry many heavy buckets of water up hundreds of stairs for no apparent reason. I've stood in dramatic poses on mountaintops at both sunrise and sunset. I've even learned to wax on and wax off. But I'm still not sure what spirituality is. Look, just pray more. You'll get it. I know what to say, think and do, but I don't think I'll ever feel it. Of course you will, my child. How do you know, Master? Uh, uh, yes, well, the Force. The Force is strong with you, my child. The Force? Uh, Shh, don't say that. Do you want to get sued? George Lucas has his minions everywhere looking for copyright infringements. Even on top of a mountain? Especially on top of a mountain. The Force is strong with you. The Fors. What is the Fors, Master? Ah, yes. The Fors is an ancient and mystical for- uh, energy that binds us and surrounds us. It links every living creature in the universe. It runs through your veins. Like a good lentil dal, I can sense it. Yes. I want to master this Fors, and then I can use my light dagger to fight and defeat the evil Duth Vida. Will you train me, Master Kanubi? Yeah, alright. Yes! Welcome, listeners in podcast land. Whether you're out and proud as a faith wrestling beyondra, or you're just browsing and happen to overhear. Or maybe you're listening in the closet and this will just be our little secret. This is the Beyondering Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. Welcome all to episode 9, Just Be Yond. Exploring spirituality and spiritual practices. In the podcast series so far, we've covered some wonderful territory, some dense ideas, some, some large theological concepts... But in this episode, we want to slow down. We want to get our feet on the earth and look at spiritual practices that can help us ground and embody our faith. With Beyondering, we also wanted to have a three-dimensional approach. We wanted to explore outward expressions of faith, what the actions of faith looks like in the world through pursuits of justice, inclusivity and hospitality, as well as explorations of our inner world and soul. We wanted to do some rigorous work for our heads to engage with, as well as offer some insights to tap into the heart. To begin a genuine conversation with a range of voices that echo around inside ourselves, and to find which ones speak the truth. To explore the soul and the heart, and to allow that to feed our lives. So this episode invites us to go in, and to dig down.
the other day as she flattened button nose against misty window, traced raindrop snail trail lines down the glass with her fingers, little girl. You see so much clearer than I ever could. Too often I run from playing in the rain. I do not see God in its drops as you do, little girl. Too often I run. Too often I miss God in misty windows. I do not sense the ever-present sacred pullback. Layers of the mundane glimpse infinity mind. Too busy, scattered rush of too many thoughts and too many phone calls and too many responsibilities. Little girl, would you teach me of that secret story woven in and through the fabric of simplicity? For heaven, these eyelids that hold the world in. Our first guest is Alex Sangster. Currently in ministry in the Uniting Church in Australia, Alex is also something of a star of Australian stage and screen as both a performer and a playwright. IMDB.com lists Alex's notable roles as Anna from Blue Healers, Lucy from the TV movie Kangaroo Palace, and Hooker from Halifax FP. (laughs) In recent years, she's also managed to write the Bible a fantastic retelling of the life of Jesus called the Mystic Bible, illustrated with colourful artwork and using images and language free from heavy religious dogma. It invites children to explore the sacred stories from a new perspective. I choose to read it with my kids because it tells the story without language or elements that they will need to unlearn as they get older. So Alex's gift is to touch meaningfully on the real themes of life in ways that doesn't hide from the mess or dress up solutions in dense religious language. So Alex, tell us a little bit about your own story. How did you arrive at this uh, at this place where you are? Sure. I'll give you the um, the edited version. Sanitized. <laughs> no, 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 it's not sanitised. It's just... Um, so essentially I was born uh, to socialist hippies in the Dandenongs and they raised me with this concept that I was meant to change the world. That was my job. Uh, and I didn't quite know how I was going to do this, but when I was eight years old I saw a Midsummer Night's Dream and went, oh, that's what I'm going to do with my So I thought that one of the ways to change things, to make a difference in the world, was through telling stories and by connecting people into these big stories that needed to be told. I started working professionally as an actor when I was about 13, worked my way through high school, went to the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts and started working uh, when I graduated in a long-running Aussie bad soapy. Uh, I did this and each week I would meet these actors week after week that I had grown up watching on the telly and I'd be like, you know, oh my God, it's so-and-so. And And then I began to hear a little bit about their lives and about, you know, that great uh, Meadow Lee commercial they'd done two years ago and, oh, and that small role in the STC, yeah. And... um, And it sort of dawned on me that actually if I was going to try and change the world, this might be a really slow way of going about doing it. So I went back to uni. I studied international development studies with the idea that I would go off and dig a well somewhere in the developing world where wells needed to be dug. Came to the profound uh, epiphany that actually part of the reason the developing world was uh, so stuffed up was because we, the first world, my world, was stuffing it. So that led me intellectually to ask the question, well, why are we the way that we are? Why are we um, without any sense of respect or love for creation? This intellectually led me to the place of feeling that we had lost any sense of meaning or purpose or hope and that we had lost God. So then I was like, well, who does the God stuff? Who, Who looks after that? So any connection that I had to even the concept of the Christian church up until this point was that it was a racist, homophobic, sexist, really daggy institution that I really would never have anything to do with. But intellectually, I began to go, well, who explores these big questions? And as a child of the West, Christianity was my traditional home. It strikes me that um, you've 
dodged a bullet in the sense of coming hmm. um, into faith after an experiential understanding, after your own questing, as opposed to inheriting things that you then need to sift through. And yeah. for us that were birthed into the tradition, we're having to deconstruct that which gets in the way of the sorts of stuff you're talking about. Yeah. What has your experience and understanding meant practically? What, what has it meant in terms of how you respond to God and the world uh, because of how you see and experience God? I think that there is a great freedom which comes from not being brought up in the tradition. So there's a whole lot of language and theologies that um, I've never had to work my way through or, through or let go of. Um, so I think dodging the bullet language is, is appropriate. Um, it means that I have been able to simply... Um, that space of that people... Uh, Connecting with about you know connecting in with God through the prayer experience or through the communal experience, um, where everything else falls away, uh, that essentially has been the place that I've always been with God, and um, so yeah, that's been been a great gift. Mm. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that and ask uh, questions around what prayer prayer might look like and how you understand prayer, what what it's doing. Um, we have. A, a question from a from a younger member of our community, uh, Faith. She's five years old. I'm Faith. And I'm five. Eating pigs like peace. The Bible was really heavy. I once saw a Christmas tree being put to death. If only the world was made of love. Should I pray for things to happen? Or for stuff that I want? If God is everywhere and knows everything, then what's the point of telling God stuff? What is prayer for? Ah, oh, Faith, they are such fantastic questions. Do you know, I think that maybe, I think God is everywhere and God does know everything along with us. So I don't think God knows stuff before we know it. Because I reckon God's in this journey with us. You know, like if you and I were walking down the street together and a dog suddenly ran out, then we'd both experience that at the same time. I don't think God, you know, knows that the, the dog's going to run out any more than you or I do because God is um, actively taking part in the world along with us. I think that in the same way that if you were feeling something and you hadn't told me, and I was your mummy, I would want you to tell me so that I could help you work through it. I think we need to tell God what we're feeling as well, because otherwise God's not going to know. It's like we're making a cake together. It's not like God's already made the cake and we're just eating it. We're going to make it together with God, and God needs our help. You know, there's this, there's this amazing story about um, a little girl who was a little bit older than you, and her name is Etty. And she, uh, she was alive during the Second World War, which was a really long time ago. Have you, you've probably heard about the Second World War. But anyway, she got very cross at God, very, very cross at God, because she was having a very, very scary and hard time in the war. And she said to God, well, I'm not going to pray to you anymore and I'm not going to be with you because you're not helping me and you're not helping my family and we're all very frightened. But then a few days later, Etty writes in her diary of how she has begun to pray with God and to God again because she can feel how lonely and sad God is without her. And she says that for as long as she and God are in this war together, she's going to hold God's hand. So I think that's a really different way of thinking about God, that God actually wants to hear what's inside your heart and what you're frightened about and what you're worried about so that God can fill you with love and courage and energy and you can hold God's hand and together you can find your way into all these big things that the world is filled with. Faith's very lucky. She's got a lot to go home with <laughs> and think about. That's a beautiful answer. The um, I think many of our listeners are wrestling with questions like no longer seeing God as an interventionalist God and no longer necessarily seeing God as a personal God or as a theistic God. And therefore that's having significant challenges and questions for what prayer looks like and means. So in this new and different understanding, perhaps if you could speak to Faith's parents as well, um, 
what does prayer look like in this new framework if God's changing shape for us? Mm. I think there is, um, as much as uh, we spoke earlier about the soul and the spirit being a real tangible thing, we are also blood and bone and flesh. And we know a whole lot more about brain science now than we ever knew in the past. We know, you know, they've stuck um, Buddhist monks under, you know, brain imaging scanning equipment to see what happens when they pray, what happens when they meditate. So we know from a basic physiological um sort of response to prayer practices that they do make us healthier and stronger. So even if you were just doing it for a practical, you know, brain training exercise, I say go for it. You know, regardless, you could do it as an atheist and know that you're going to come out the other end with a much healthier brain and therefore a healthier body and a healthier heart. So I think there's that truth. Um, but for those of us that are also praying because out of a faith-based place, um, there is this, this truth about about energy. Energy is a real thing and I'm not a scientist and I don't have scientific language but I know that you know the information is out there about what happens when we generate uh, when we generate energy through our thoughts. This energy doesn't just disappear it joins with my belief is that it joins with all the other energy that is out there being created by other people praying and that energy can have a real tangible effect on the you know the, the practical world in which we live so uh, while i do not believe in an interventionist god um i do believe that god is with us and God's energy is joining with our energy and that is part of transforming creation. I think this question of, you know, the original idea that we had about God is God is all powerful, all loving, all good and everywhere. And, you know, that progressive or emerging theologians go, well, one of these things has to give. What are you prepared to let go of? Because that practically doesn't make sense when we hold it up against the experience of the, the cancer um, the person suffering from cancer or the person in the bushfire or the person in the tsunami or the ultimate kind of ending to all arguments, the person in the Holocaust or the person in Rwanda. So what do we do with this concept of God who apparently is all these things and we have to let go of one of them because, you know, it just doesn't add up. I'm prepared to let go of God's power. I'm not prepared to let go of God's goodness or God's uh, wisdom or God's presence, but I am prepared to let go of God's power. I think the experience of Jesus on the cross, the whole point in some ways, um, if we are to to find a point in this state-sanctioned torture that happened 2,000 years ago, is that God, if God is um, on the cross in Christ and everyone is saying, get down, get down from the cross, you know, the whole point of Jesus saying, I, that's not what this is about. This is not about me getting down and being powerful. This is about vulnerability and brokenness and you realising that the only thing that's going to make a difference to creation is you actually uh, making that difference yourselves. Alex, prayer is something I've struggled with. I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Um, I'm an extrovert. I'm a very people-y person, highly relational. I'm bloody busy-minded. Can you, how do you enter this prayer stuff? What would you say to people for whom prayer is a struggle and, and a challenge? As an extrovert and very busy person myself, I would say, my son, meditate, meditate, meditate. Find a meditative practice that is going to fit in with your everyday. So we are called to make our life our prayer. For myself as someone, you know, uh, who is constantly on the go and it, it can be uh, a great temptation. I think I've recognised, uh, to use an ancient word, the sin of being busy and um, and the, 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 the temptation to, to be busy, 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 busy. And that might be uh, the prayer through mantra. It might be prayer through walking. It might be prayer through breath. It might be prayer on um, prayer beads, which is a tradition within the Buddhist and the Christian tradition. It might be prayer through chanting or song. But find something that you can do while you're driving. Find something that you can do while you're washing the dishes. Find something that you can do while you're walking the dog. So that would be what I would encourage you towards and find something that's going to work within the constraints of your busy extroverted life. Spirituality is, um, it's very simple in a way. It's a, spirit is another word for soul 
And so it's a way of connecting in with that soul space, which is part of us, all of us, sitting by the side of someone that you love or holding their hand as they pass from this world into the next. The soul is a real thing and that when the mortal body dies, the soul does leave that body. And there is this extraordinary moment of the soul breaking free and that body simply lying there and being a body again. And you know, if anyone, when I often have, you know, conversations with atheists, I think, God, if you could have only been there when that soul departed, you would have no, no doubt that there was a reality beyond this one. Prayer for me, if I look at how prayer has been done in the churches I've been a part of and how I've been taught to pray, it can often feel really full, really um, about me, very ego-y or very mini-sermony. You know, I've seen lots of unhelpful prayer. Can you speak to us about uh, the limits of prayer, what gets in the way of good prayer and, and perhaps what the healthiest version possible of prayer might be? And yeah. So I come from a tradition of spiritual direction and, you know, Ignatius would always ask, well, what are the fruits? So I would say the question I would ask about prayer is what are the fruits of your prayer? And by fruits, coming back to uh, faith's question, I don't mean that God has answered your prayer and that given you the birthday cake that you were hoping for or taken away your cancer. But I mean, is there new life inside you? Are you renewed? Do you feel like it's possible to keep going? Do you feel less afraid? Are you less lonely? Uh, are you more energized to be part of transformation? So I would be encouraging people to be still um, and to not chastise yourself when you get back in the way and when you start list making and when you start because these particularly for those that have been brought up in a tradition of word-based interventionist prayer. It's a very long, slow journey to let go of these ideas. I, I came across the concept a long time ago of theological abuse. And I think that many people in our churches, Protestant and Catholic alike, suffer from theological abuse. They've been given such appalling outrageous ideas about who God is and that breaks my heart and I realized very early on in my uh, vocational call that because I hadn't been brought up with these ideas about God part of my call journey was to help people to let go of those ideas and to share these new possible ways of understanding who God is um, who God has been throughout our human history and how we can share that vision of God into the future. Whose mind am I changing when I pray? How much does God take posture into account when we pray? Does being on our knees add an extra kick? Does lying prostrate flatter God into action? I mean, can you really petition God reclining on a lazy boy? I asked. I didn't receive. Can I still believe? Did I not wait long enough or ask strong enough? Did I pose the wrong question at the wrong time in the wrong way? Perhaps I did receive it, but I didn't perceive it. Will I eventually receive, no matter what I believe? Why is asking and receiving so often full of grieving? second guest is Parker Palmer, the only man on this podcast capable of matching it with the deep dulcet tones of Beyondering's own Lucas Taylor. What's not a stat he would share himself, Parker Palmer has around 48,000 Facebook followers, giving you some appreciation for how much this man is sought after. Incidentally, that's approximately 47,500 more than Lucas. 
But this was a challenging interview for me to do. I felt like a giddy school kid leaning over the fence at a sporting event, attempting to get the signature of my favourite athlete. Hey, Mr. Palmer. Thankfully, we were able to edit out most of my schoolgirl giggles. And whilst I don't have a giant poster of Parker Palmer on my wall, that I'm prepared to admit to, his earthy, honest and beautifully wise literature has had a profound impact on me personally. His life's work centres around the interior life, the nurture of one's soul. However, he approaches this not in a reclusive, desert monk, contorting on a levitating cushion type way, but in a refreshingly accessible and relevant way for life in today's world. He is, after all, an activist, an advocate and an educator, and therefore he seeks to explore a spirituality not of mere navel-gazing, but one that integrates the inner world with outer action. And he looks great on posters. All good? Okay. Headphones? Hello? Oh, Parker, it's so lovely to be chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time and, and for sharing it with us. Lovely to meet both of you guys. Yeah. I'm really intrigued with this uh, beyondering project you're doing, yeah. so I'm honoured to be with you. We're going to talk to you about spirituality. That's the main topic of, of this interview. I'm interested in your observations about spirituality and the spiritual journey. It's it's back in vogue, spirituality. It's a bit of a buzz term, but, but it seems to be caught up with very individualistic pursuits around how good I feel and, uh, you know, health, and which are all good things. But you, you talk about interior life and life out in the world. And could you speak to us more about your understanding of spirituality and sure. the spiritual journey? Yeah. Let me start with sort of my, my definition of spirituality. You know, I know that some people, some Christians anyway, or some, some theists, when asked, will say, well, spirituality is, for example, they'll use a poetic phrase like, uh, whatever fills that God-shaped space inside of you. And it's a lovely phrase, and I, I respect that idea. But for me, a good definition has to be more neutral than that. So for me, the definition of spirituality that works goes like this. Spirituality is, is any way you have of answering or responding to the eternal human yearning to be connected with something larger than your own ego. The reason I like that definition is that it applies as much to the Third Reich and the Holocaust as it does to the finest expressions of human goodness and altruism. So if you look at what was going on in Germany during and after the Weimar Republic where the Third Reich started to arise, what you find is a whole lot of people who felt emptied of meaning, um, economic collapse. They needed a sense of meaning and purpose. And here comes a guy named Adolf Hitler, who, you know, like some of our leading politicians today, he didn't have a plan to solve those problems because he didn't need one. All he needed was a scapegoat. So, you know, we have to have a definition that that provides critical insight into sort of what's going on at those moments in history when that yearning to be connected gets gets filled with something evil. Your definition of spirituality there moves us away from maybe some of the more passive understandings of spirituality being about meditation, sitting quietly, and, and it actually draws us out to a more active pursuit or an active connection and is that what drew you to things like community organizing and um, expressing spirituality in, in a concrete and active way it certainly came to me eventually that if if the spiritual quest was simply to end up in narcissism um, I needed to find some better way of spending my life <laughs> and that's a very unhealthy place to be and because you know, because we are created in, through, and for community, it stands to reason that the soul's imperative 
is going to have some are going to have something to do with reconnecting with that community, with bringing our gifts to it, with engaging its problems. And God knows there are plenty of problems out there today that, to quote Abraham Lincoln, demand the better angels of our nature. So I've seen people take the inward journey and get lost in that self-absorbed, narcissistic place. I've also seen activists who never check in with their own souls, with their own hearts, with their own motivations, whose motivations, because they go unexamined, curdle and uh, turn bitter and sometimes turn, turn violent. Here I can quote Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and I always like to add to that now that I'm old enough to amend Socrates. Um, I, I like to add, and, and if you choose to live an unexamined life, please do not take a job that involves other people, right? Because <laughs> you're going to do, do a lot of damage. In terms of this, this inner world and trying to integrate it with the outer world, our, our living and our acting, you, you talk in the book you referred to earlier about living an undivided life, of attempting to do that integration work. And, of course, the implication that often we live a divided life. Can you speak to us a bit more about what you mean by that and perhaps your own spiritual journey of attempting to live a, a more undivided life? When I was in... Washington, D.C. as a community organizer, um, part of my burnout had to do with the fact that I was, I was operating more out of a sense of what I ought to be doing in this suffering world than out of an interior sense of calling and giftedness. And, and I think there's a place in life, you know, for that, that passage when we're when our ethics is sort of an exoskeleton holding us up and taking us in a certain direction. But if you're going to live, if you live long and very long and, and start experiencing the fact that an exoskeleton is a very uncomfortable place to live and that human beings are meant to have an endoskeleton, which, you know, supports us from the inside, then the question becomes, okay, what, what are those imperatives of my soul? I'm really taken by the image you used of an exoskeleton compared to an endoskeleton of finding uh, the, the strength from those things within as opposed to feeling compelled to live up to some sort of external standards. It strikes me that, that many people's experiences in, in a church or in some other institution is actually wrestling with an exoskeleton which is being placed upon them. Can you say a little bit more about that? I, I have real empathy for a lot of clergy who don't want this to be the deal. You know, they don't want to be the guy or the gal who stands up there and does people's religion for them, provides that exoskeleton. But there are a lot of people sitting in the pews who are programmed to think that that's what's supposed to be happening. Here's the person who's been to seminary. Here's the person who's read the books. Here's the person who's thought about it. So do my religion for me and, you know, send me home every Sunday with, uh, with some shellac on my exoskeleton um, or some repairs to it. Um, and I know good, good clergy who, who try to change that dance only to meet with fierce resistance from parishioners who are saying, wait a minute, we're paying you to do this for us. Why are you asking us to do it for ourselves, right? But how it often, I think, takes a crisis in your life to, to come to that place because getting rid of the exoskeleton is not only hard, it's scary if that's what's been holding you up. As I've written and spoken about on a number of occasions, um, I've suffered in my adult life from three major dives into profound clinical depression. And, and it's a mystery as to how it happens, uh, but I came through, uh, not only survived, uh, you know, months in the, in the pits of hell, but 
have managed, you know, to thrive on the other side. Although several times in my life I've had to go there again, and um, you know, I've, I've always said people say I don't understand why so and so committed suicide. I just don't get that. Well, I I understand it. The depression is exhausting, and they needed the rest. Um, what I've always said about those experiences is that whenever I'm in that horrific place, which is <clears throat> is not so much like being lost in the dark as having become the dark. That's that's the way one experiences it. There's no differentiation between you and the darkness. You know, it's not like I'm lost here. I think, but I can find my way out. You're it, and uh, you know, there's no there's no way out. That's how it feels. And so in those times, it, it became clear to me in retrospect that all of the faculties I had normally depended upon were useless and, and dead and gone. So this is not something that you can think your way out of. There's no book that tells you how to get out of this. It's not something that you can feel your way out of because depression is not so much a feeling of sadness as the terrifying understanding that you can't feel anything at all. It's just the absence of feeling. Um, the, your ego is uh, is shattered and gone. So, you know, you're, you're, you're powerless. Um, and, you know, so every, everything that you've depended upon uh, is dead, in, including your body. Um, but what I've experienced every now and then when I got to that, well, frankly, to the point of, you know, sort of asking myself, is this the day to end it all, was at, at, in some way that I'll never understand, I was able to um, experience or feel, sense, I guess, sense more than anything. Um, this, what I came to think of as this wild animal way back in the underbrush of my of my very dark life, and um, and and this this like a wild animal, this thing, whatever you want to call it, um, is is tough and resilient and knows how to stay alive in places where there is no food and where the weather is deadly, um, in ways that my e my ego, my intellect, my emotions so forth, didn't, weren't able to. And, and so I, I began to understand that those occasional sort of graced experiences of this, of this spark of life inside of me, this, this wild animal, was something that I was comfortable calling the soul. Um, you know, it didn't, it didn't tell me its name, <laughs> um, it, because that's not how it works. And the truth is that it's, it's a human, I believe it's a human reality that many people name in many different ways. And I've always said, I really don't care what you call it. So, you know, humanists call it identity and integrity, or, you know, Buddhists call it big self. Um, uh, Quakers call it soul or, or inner teacher, indwelling Christ. Thomas Merton called it true self out of the Catholic mystical tradition. On and on it goes. Um, all religious and secular wisdom traditions have some name. So I, what you call it doesn't matter to me. But that you name it and claim it does matter to me because ultimately I think this is the being in human being. And if we don't have a way of naming that and claiming that, then we become to ourselves and to each other objects to be manipulated in the marketplace or in the political arena. We become um, commodities to be bought and sold. Uh, we become empty vessels to be filled with other people's wisdom, knowledge, insight, all those oughts, we become less than human to ourselves and we regard others in the same way. And frankly, there's a lot of that going around. 
um, certainly in this country and in our politics, um, where we have, you know, a few people running for high office in this land who, who in, in, in this respect, and I, I, I speak carefully here because this is not a parallel I draw glibly, in this respect remind me of Hitler's rise to power. They don't need a plan to solve the problems. All they need is a scapegoat to throw into the maw of the fear that a lot of Americans feel about, for example, the fact that by 2040, 2045, this country, according to demographers, is going to be over half people of color. And there are a lot of people who look like me who are terrified by that. And so when one of our presidential candidates stands up and says, here's my plan. I'm going to build a wall between us and Mexico to keep all those people from coming in and then describes them in the vilest and cruelest and most untrue terms, falsest of terms, um, you know, that's what you get playing to that fear. And historically, we have too many examples of how it's worked. It's such a powerful image, the idea of a wild animal um, existing within our inner forest. What are some ways we can allow that animal to speak its truth, to be heard, to, to offer it the resilience and power that it has? Yes, um, absolutely. Important. And I think, I, I, I do believe that creating safe spaces for that wild animal to allow itself to be known for the soul to speak and to be heard is one of the, is one of the major mandates of our day. I mean, I, I, I think to be a leader these days, if you want to be a creative leader around really hard problems, one of your first jobs is to master the art of creating safe spaces. So, you know, what, I, what the wild animal metaphor led me to was this notion that not only is the soul tough, resilient, resourceful, and all of that, but it's also, like a wild animal, essentially shy. And I've had a lot of response from folks over this notion of the shy soul. Uh, I've said, you know, if, you want to, if you're in the woods, with a place where I spend at least a month every year in a wilderness area, if you're in the woods and you want to see a wild animal, the last thing you want to do is go crashing through the forest yelling, come out, come out, I demand it, I want to see you. Uh, which is what a lot of our religious institutions do, I think. Right. It's like, come out, come out, bring it up, you know, put it on the table. Um, that, that, just, that doesn't work. That brings the ego out, you know, it's just, and, and a lot of other worthless stuff. Uh, you know, it's a circus, and circuses have their marginal value, but it's not the real, the, the real deal. The, as we say in Wisconsin, it's not the whole kielbasa. <laughs> so, glad to bring an, uh, an American, right. <laughs> a strange American word to Australia. <laughs> yeah, so, what you need to do, we all know, to see a wild animal in the woods is you need to sit at the base of a tree, you need to breathe with the earth for a while, you need quiet, quiet, quiet down, disappear, really. So what I've done in, in my work over the years, which manifested itself 20, 25 years ago in what's now called the Center for Courage and Renewal, we've um, tried to master the art of creating circles of trust where that kind of safe space is available. One of our rules is no fixing, no saving, no advising and no correcting each other. Those are the behaviors, those fixing, saving, etc. behaviors that drive the soul back into the woods, back into hiding. The soul doesn't want to be fixed, it wants to be heard. It doesn't want to be saved, but wants to be heard, it wants to be seen and acknowledged. Um, and you know, that's one of the great human wounds of our time. There are so many people who feel unseen and unacknowledged. And they aren't just talking about their faces and 
their vocal voices. They're talking about their identity and integrity. They're talking about their souls not being seen and acknowledged and, and heard. Parker, when you speak of the spiritual journey, you often talk about darkness and imperfections and even failure. And, and when you do, you speak about it not as the antithesis of faith or of the spiritual journey, but a really integral part of the journey. Can you, can you speak a little bit more about its role in spiritual growth and, and indeed life? Well, I have, that brings back, Matt, a, um, a vivid memory from years ago. I, w- I was in my 40s and I was depressed and I went to uh, a spiritual guide that I respected, a, a woman <clears throat> who, um, you know, had, had been on her own significant journey. And I said to her, I said, you know, I felt like I was getting so close to the light. I mean, I, you know, I felt like I was really going somewhere in my spiritual journey is so close to the light and suddenly I'm standing in this big shadow that I didn't even know was behind me. And she looked at me and smiled and said, that ha- that's what happens when you get close to any light, mm-hmm. any big light. <laughs> There's the shadow. As you bring those the shadow and the light together, and you're able to say, I am all of the above. I'm not just my my strengths and my gifts and my assets and my successes, but I am also my failures and, and my betrayals and my mistakes and my wrongdoing. You know, what it takes many forms. Um, th- then then you're 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 achieving wholeness. And, and I think that's something that often gets missed by people. They, they see wholeness as some sort of perfection. Wholeness is not about perfection. It's about embracing your, your imperfections as an integral part of your life. The Christian tradition puts some obstacles in our way about this. Um, because whether on purpose or not, it promotes some sort of vision of purity or perfection that is impossible of achievement and that leaves people feeling lacking and that needs to be reframed in terms of what real wholeness looks like. You know, I, I think one of the big mistakes we make is to think about Christianity as a body of thou shalts and thou shalt nots, a, a body of ethics which quickly turns to an exoskeleton. What, are, what I think Christianity really is, along with the other wisdom traditions, is a way of framing what's real and what isn't. You know, it's an, and, and a way of, of looking at the world that allows you to see what's real and what isn't. You know, if there's one thing that's clear to me, it's that it's a whole lot better to be grounded in reality, no matter how tough reality is, than it is to to try to sink your roots into illusions. Um, and I think that too often Christianity is peddling illusions about you know what life should be. I one of the ways I like to put this is to say that typically when someone comes to us and says, "Oh, I'm so disillusioned about this or that." Our, our instinct is to put our arms around their shoulders and say, I'm so sorry, How can I, let me comfort you. We really ought to be saying, congratulations, you're disillusioned. That means you've lost an illusion, and that moves you one step closer to reality. How can I disillusion you further? Um, you know, and, and believe me, I'm the guy who can do it. You know? <laughs> Follow me. <laughs> this, this, this actually sounds like really good advertising for our podcast. Totally. <laughs> Allow us Disil- to disillusion you further. Yeah, dis- disillusionment central. <laughs> Parker, we need to let you go. Uh, on a personal note, thank you so much for your time, and I'm going to be really you know, indulgent and slip in a personal thank you. Your your work and your writing has been so influential to me as a minister and, and you've probably been one of the most profound voices in how I do ministry. So I, I just want to say thank you for, for all that you've done and, and all that you've offered. You, you just have such beautiful 
courageous honesty and authenticity and the work you continue to hold out to us and to others is just so rich and so honest and so thank you thank you for what you bring thank you matt that means a lot to me and thank you lucas for this opportunity as well thanks to beyondering yeah, and uh, yeah. Long, may you flourish with this wonderful enterprise. Thank you. And you have so much wisdom to share. Who knows? We may even squeeze in a part two in a year or two's time. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> well, that, no, I would enjoy doing that. I really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, mm. So now all I have to do is, is learn some new things. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, we'll give you a bit of space to do that and you get to reading and writing. And <laughs> I, think, I think you've probably published a few books that we haven't managed to touch on yet. So there's, there's still a bit of material that we haven't quite managed to scratch yet. <laughs> well, it's, it's, as I like to say to people, it's either the case that I've written nine books or that I've written the same book nine times. <laughs> <laughs> Good book, though. Really good book. So. <laughs> thank you, guys. I've really enjoyed it. No worries. Well, thank you so much for coming Beyondering with us. I'll look forward to next steps. To find out more about either of our guests and other voices that Alex and Parker invite us to engage with, check out the website beyondering.com.au. Whilst you're online, why not jump on Facebook and kick around the ideas that are being kicked around here? And while you're at it, subscribe on Facebook to our mailing list if you haven't already. Next week, episode 10, Tis the Season Finale, the season one of the Beyond Ring podcast, and also our Christmas special. We'll be looking at Jesus, which kind of feels appropriate, with special guest and world-renowned Jesus scholar, John Dominic Crossan. I really see Jesus, historically, as a peasant with an attitude. But theologically... I believe that attitude to be the attitude of God. So until next time, thanks for coming Beyondering. Beyondering is supported by the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria. Join the network, find resources and learn about upcoming events at pcnvictoria.blogspot.com.au and Common Dreams an alliance of religious progressives in Australia, New Zealand and the South Pacific. Visit commondreams.org.au to learn more about the next Common Dreams conference to be held in Brisbane, September 16th to 19th, 2016. Edited by Shaz Mullins and technologically massaged by Adam, is that Detacher Ball? <laughs> <laughs>